Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Many people today wonder if preparing kids for a college education is worthwhile. They say college is a poor investment that's likely to start a lifelong cycle of debt, that young people can get a good job without going to college, and that the skills needed to work today change so fast that the higher education system can't keep up. Others argue that college gives young people access to valuable resources and helps them stand out from other applicants for high-level jobs. But in the debate about the goals of secondary education, maybe we should be asking another question entirely. Are kids being prepared for a good college or a good life? And are we failing to teach critical skills that will help young people adapt to a changing world, persevere through tough times, and thrive throughout their lives. My guest today is Anna Humayun. She's the author of four books, an academic advisor and early career development expert who believes that striving to get kids into the perfect college might actually be shortchanging them in the quest to prepare them for a successful life. Today we'll be talking about her new book, Erasing the Finish Line, the new blueprint for success beyond grades and college admission. Anna Humayun, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me and for that great intro to the book. So we all know people with teenage kids who spend years preparing to get them into the top college, cultivating extracurricular activities, studying for exams, agonizing over application essays. Are you saying that's a lot of misguided effort and getting into a great school isn't a launching pad for a successful life? You know, what I'm really saying is that people are so obsessed with high test scores and college admissions that we're missing developing critical and crucial skills that are key for lifelong success. So it's not as though, you know, preparing for college is a bad thing. It's just that our laser focus on achievements often leaves students feeling anxious, demoralized, and unprepared. And so what I did with my book, Erasing the Finish Line, is I actually went back and I interviewed my students from 15 to 20 years ago who are now in their early to mid 30s. And, you know, hearing their stories and the the skills that they learned in my office around organizing, planning, prioritizing, and starting and completing tasks and being adaptable when things didn't go as planned were really the launching pads for skills that they use in their careers every day. And so I felt like you know, when we so focus on college admissions, we miss the sight that these are these skills that we need lifelong for life, especially in a world where so much of our lives are online, which is totally different than 10 to 15 years ago. You've worked with many kids who have gotten into great schools, um, but is there a price they pay for all that effort that it took to get them there? Well, every kid is different, right? So I want to be very clear. So my whole goal around erasing the finish line is around helping every child develop their own blueprint, right? So if you think about one of the stories in the book, Philip, um, Philip went to Harvard um, and he is an incredibly intellectual, open and curious individual. 
and he will probably do incredible things for humanity. Um, he's very mission driven um, and very smart. I would say the one thing that he really gave up to be, and I talk about it in this book, is sleep. Um, his lack of sleep in high school was extraordinary. And when I went back to interview him at this point, he has gone to medical school. He's gone to business school. He's very interested in biotech and developing, you know, um, treatments for um, different diseases. And, uh, but he said, you know, I never miss eight hours of sleep in college, in graduate school, you know, in medical school. So it was just this one piece of time, but every child is different. And so what benefits one and what is really interesting to them um, can be really helpful as well in terms of having a great high school experience and having um, the most options that are appropriate for them for college. So my whole goal is really helping every student figure out what's the best pathway for them, irrespective of what everyone else is doing. So there are students who are able to make the best out of the opportunity to go to a selective college and others who flounder. Why is that, do you think? Doesn't working your butt off to get into a top school mean that you have the qualities to make a success of it? So what's really interesting is um, over the last couple of years since COVID, I have been getting more and more calls from parents whose children have gotten to hyper elite colleges and they get there and they start to flounder. And they, you know, a couple were on academic probation. And what ended up happening was that they, these students didn't have the daily life management skills. Like their parents thought, gosh, your job is school. So I'll take care of everything else while you're in high school. So when the kids got to college, they weren't getting up on time. They weren't going to class. They weren't able to manage their laundry or eating and just daily living tasks and also focus on, you know, managing a changing school schedule, which often happens in college. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is like how parents can in this moment, if you have a middle school or high school student or even an elementary school student, start auditing what tasks you're doing for your child that they'll need to do for themselves when they go away to college, when they join the workforce, when they leave your home. And around, you know, these tasks around organizing, planning, prioritizing, getting things done, um, adapting when something doesn't go as planned. Just really look at what do you do and, and collaborate with them. Have them come up with a list of what do my parents or caregivers do for me that I'm going to have to do on my own and, and compare lists. And then what I encourage people to do is just have um, students choose one to two of those tasks at a time to sort of transfer over to them. You know, the, the most interesting thing for me is the number one thing I found that students were struggling with doing on their own in this audit was actually getting up and getting out the door on time. <laughs> All the tasks that required to do that. So you call them executive functioning skills. Unpack that. What that sounds like something that a person in in a hedge fund would have. So, <laughs> right? What so what are what does that mean? Executive functioning skills when it comes to young people. Sure, sure. And let me back up and say executive functioning skills is actually an academic term. It wasn't used in the lexicon um, up until about a little over a decade ago. And now it's really used in academic settings. So, you know, psychologists will 
will test children or neuropsychologists will test children and say, you know, a student has executive functioning deficits. And so, you know, I broke it down into the book on the, the five that I start with around organizing, prioritizing, planning, starting and completing tasks and being adaptable, adaptable thinker. But when you actually look at executive functions, right, the core functions the research shows are around inhibitory control. So that means like impulse control. So are you able to, you know, make decisions that are appropriate to your long-term goals, right? And a lot of times we think of inhibitory control in terms of managing distractions or impulses. But in the book, I talk a lot about how it really affects kids' ability to connect with one another and make and maintain friendships. Hmm. And then you're also talking about working memory. So working memory is when you're able to remember, you know, you're able to think about something that you learned maybe today or last week and relate it to something that, you know, you learned five weeks ago, right? And so what are the different, um, the ways to think about all of those pieces? And the last is really thinking about cognitive flexibility. So cognitive flexibility is your ability to be flexible. And what I mean by that is, so when you have a friendship, right, with somebody, and, you know, they have a different point of view. Cognitive flexibility is the ability to see that point of view, whether or not um, they, you know, you necessarily agree with it, but but see it from a different point of view. Or if maybe you didn't make the soccer team or, you know, you didn't get um, a lead in the school play or the person you want to be in a relationship with doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. How do you adapt and move forward and, and move beyond thinking there's only one pathway forward. That's hard stuff for a high school kid. Can this stuff... It's hard, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard for, stuff for adults. For, I know, that's what I'm thinking. Is this, is this stuff that can actually be taught? Or, or do some people just have these essential qualities and or are expected to develop them through life? It, it, I've never even heard about this kind of stuff being taught. Not that I don't think it, it should. It definitely should. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I think one of the things that we realize, though, is that it's important for people to step back and realize that instead of focusing on these grades and test scores, to step back and focus on these underlying habits, because these are the long term habits that will lead to better, you know, academic outcomes, but also allow kids to move in and through the world in a way that allows them to develop their own blueprint. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. Today we're talking about paths to a rewarding life for young people that do not involve getting into a top college. My guest is academic advisor and career development expert Anna Humayun. Her latest book is Erasing the Finish Line, The New Blueprint for Success Beyond Grades and College Admission. So, as I said before, I have to say that a lot of adults even those of us long at a college could really enhance their lives if they learned some of these skills. So let's mm -hmm. talk about them. The first that comes to mind is organization. You say in the book that it drives you absolutely crazy when you meet a student whose papers are sticking out of their binders and they have no real system in place that enables them to plan and track their workflow. Talk about organization, something that frankly, many of us take for granted. How critical is it? And how might you teach somebody to be more organized? 
Yeah. So I want to also clarify, I am never annoyed with a child. I <laughs> I love working with children. And I, I, what I feel like though, for the poor child is that when you have this whole pile of papers and this, this, you know, no, when you lack a system, it actually increases your stress. And so we're so worried about children's mental health and well-being. And yet we haven't stepped back that when we help them be organized, when we help them come up with a system to manage their physical, you know, papers, their digital spaces, and how they maintain their workflow. So those are the three pieces, like how do they actually get work done and then completed and then move forward? When we don't do that, we're actually just doing them a disservice because students today need time structure and support to learn these skills. I recently had an editor write me back and say, you know, but I'm 57 and I learned this on my own. And why can't kids today do that? And I said, well, you know, kids today are juggling all of these online communications that are coming at them with such an information overload that they don't even know how and what to filter out. And so they also have to use the same tool to get their work done that is their biggest distraction from getting work done, right? So some sort of device. So helping people really see, um, you know, what are the ways that we can do this? So at home, if you're a parent or a caregiver, you can create daily and weekly time blocks to get work done where you create this great, um, you know, environment, whether that is, you know, you sit next to your child at the, the kitchen table, whether you go to the library together, whether you do this. And this this space to get work done or focus on some form of work just allows kids to block out the other things that they may be distracted by and really get to learn what focusing on one task at a time feels like. Hmm. Because that's so different for many adults. They knew what monotasking felt like, but for many kids, and you see adults with, you know, 20 tabs open on their computer and they're juggling all of these different things. And it's really hard for their brains to focus when there's so much coming at them. Hmm. You emphasize in the book that we really shouldn't wait until a kid is in high school to start prioritizing these skills. We should start way earlier. Like when? So it's interesting. I have been spending the last um, six years working with K through eight schools on this nonprofit that we developed the Life Navigator um, School Advisory Program. So it helps with all of the lessons that we're talking about. And really the lessons are based um, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. But the work that we do for K through five is really around making um, morning routines, evening routines, transitions, and coming up with, with scheduling blocks and organized classrooms. And the reason I say all this is that we know, the research shows that if you wait until a child is in ninth grade, you know, ninth grade is when Ninth grade grades, excuse me, ninth grade grades are the biggest indicator of whether or not a child graduates, they go to college, they graduate from college, right? The ninth grade grades. But if you wait until ninth grade to teach these skills, you're not getting their best possible, you know, performance because they don't have the underlying skills. So if you teach this to middle school students and start even in elementary with the basics, but in middle school, really teaching this, by ninth grade, it's second nature 
right? So we're working with a middle school right now where we started with them in year one last year. And now, you know, the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, they have it down. It is second nature. They're planning out their weeks. They're helping their friends get organized. It's part of the culture. And so now when they go to ninth grade and they're already going to deal with a transition to a new school, they have these underlying skills that they're going to start with. The book tells a lot of stories about your work with individual kids. And one of them is a young man named Henry, who I, I don't know, I really liked Henry a lot, who says... Henry is very likable. <laughs> I will say that. Well, you In made, real life, Henry is very likable. You made him, <laughs> you, you, he got across. Um, yeah. And he says to you, learning how to learn is the most critical skill I think you can learn as a person in general. And I have to say, that really struck me as the perfect way to educate kids, especially in our world today, in which things are changing all the time. So can you really learn to learn? What is involved in that? Well, so let's back up and say that Henry was actually in my first book, that crumpled paper was due last week. And so I went back to interview him. And his He's actually one of the reasons Erasing the Finish Line came to be because his mom had called me when he was in his mid-20s a number of years ago and said, you know, I've talked to Henry and he's at this job and he's doing well, but he says he uses literally exactly the same skills he learned in your office in his job today. And for Henry, when he first came into my office, and, and I think this is really helpful for, for listeners, is that. He had a 2.8 GPA. His, his high school school counselor said that there was, you know, limited options for college. And over the next two years, we really focused on the habits. And we built out these habits that taught him how does he learn best. He had been diagnosed with ADHD. And he figured out, okay, I need to take extra time here. I need to take notes here. I need to do these things. And then I can basically learn anything. So when he joined the workforce and he's had a number of different jobs that, that, you know, even within the same company that have allowed him to grow and evolve, but have required him to learn a considerable amount of new material. And the best thing that has happened for him is that he feels confident with, you know, what, what are the ways that I learn best? Right. And you know, some people would argue learning styles or research doesn't necessarily say that there are different learning styles. But one of the things I do with students is I help them develop a system. And part of that system is what are the things that you need in place to support your own learning? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's exciting to see. It's It really is. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. Today, we're talking about teaching kids how to succeed in life not just how to get into college. My guest is academic advisor and early career development expert Anna Humayun. Her latest book is Erasing the Finish Line, the New Blueprint for Success Beyond Grades and College Admissions. I was struck by what I think of as a real irony uh, in your book. Tell me if I'm right. Kids who were diagnosed early with learning disabilities and then were taught to organize, plan, prioritize, begin and complete tasks actually did as well as the quote unquote smart kids once they got into high school. Is that true? Well, I won't use the term smart kids, but what I'll say is that students that had diagnosed learning differences and were working with a learning specialist and developed these systems early 
they really were doing well. And I saw this very early in my career and I was, I was like, I, I took a note. And then what I found was that these students who were, you know, their parents would call me and say, oh, you know, Johnny is, is really, really intelligent and he gets things very quickly. He's very charismatic. He keeps it all in his head. But by the time he got to freshman or sophomore year of high school, like that system did not work and it wasn't a system, right? And it was also causing Johnny in some ways a lot of anxiety because he had high, you know, goals for himself. And then suddenly he's finding that he's missing assignments. He forgot about a test and all of that catches up and it counts. Meanwhile, the kid who has a system, you know, it's like they're, they might take them more time, but they're pretty methodical about things. They were turning in all the assignments. They weren't getting zeros. They were getting all the points. And so they ended up doing better grade wise in the class even though it took them more time and even though the work sometimes was harder for them to comprehend. And so I thought about that a lot because, you know, a lot of times the only kids that get this support around building these skills are kids with diagnosed learning difficulties, but every kid needs to learn these skills. Every kid needs to do. And if we do that, we're going to reduce a lot of the stress. We're going to help a lot of students find, figure out what they really enjoy doing. We're going to minimize that, you know, staying up late to try and complete assignments. They're getting enough sleep that affects their mental well-being, their social well-being, and their ability to focus on new material. So the the sort of the the benefits to this are endless. Um, and that was the real piece is that this isn't just for kids who are working with a learning specialist. It really is skills that all kids need to know. You write that in your experience, connection and communication skills are too often overlooked in students who have high cognitive intelligence. Again, stuff we take for granted. So what exactly are these connection and communication skills? Yeah, such a great point. So I really talk about how the obsession with college admissions pushes kids to focus on transactional socialization. So like you know, focusing on the likes, love, comments, followers, but also just like the the brief interactions of what I need and what I'm getting out of this. And as a result, you know, a lot of kids and the adults have a hard time relating informally. And so there's also been a loss of small talk skills, right? We have so many things that are happening online, so many of our initial conversations, but we also know that kids are hurting and that loneliness is an epidemic. Right. So when kids have a tough time introducing themselves and feel uncomfortable with those in-person introductory conversations and the small talk skills, it really diminishes their ability to find and develop authentic connections that are supportive. And so what I talk about in the book is how do we help students practice small talk and face-to-face introductions hmm. with the goal of allowing them to build relationships that feel authentic, feel genuine, and allow them to navigate, you know, a world where we all need supporters and clarifiers and peers that help us out. Um, and how do you find that in a in a school community? So, so let's talk about clarifiers, people you define as adults who offer clarity and wisdom. You identify two types, sponsors Mm -hmm. and mentors. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the difference between the two and, and why do kids who have them have such a leg up? Right. This is really 
one of the key points of the book that, you know, again, I talk about and give practical advice on how to help students with this, but sponsors and mentors are often overlapped and they're really different. Mentors are people that can advise offer guidance and advice, and they're excellent. They might be like a reading tutor or a college advisor. Um, They really help students do the things they need to do um, and and provide guidance and support and all of these things. Sponsors do this work in a way that moves the economic needle for the child. So what I mean by that is they – help them secure a job or an internship or, you know, make the introduction to help that happen and then see it through. And we often overlook, particularly in communities where we take it for granted, right? That that everyone knows someone who knows someone that have it. We all have sponsors in our lives if we are successful, right? We have people who have helped us get our first job or our first internship who have supported us during that time to say, hey, do this, not that. Here's how you juggle this. You know, all those pieces are so key. And so what we want to do is really just step back and realize that every kid needs both. Um, And so one of the examples that I give is this idea that, you know, mentors make sure that you're wearing the right outfit when you get on stage. Sponsors make sure you get you get on stage. Pretty good. <laughs> um, there was uh, a part of the book that really caught me. Most parents really want to help their kids by pushing them to succeed, but inadvertently make life much harder for them. You create this great metaphor for this by referencing the sport of curling. Tell us, that, <laughs> tell, tell us how sweeping the ice can backfire. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, so curling, you know, much more understood in areas that have ice and ice hockey. But, you know, this idea of curling the ice is like smoothing it out, right? And so smoothing out the rough edges, going ahead, right, and curling the ice. Um, and what ends up happening when parents smooth out the path forward And sometimes we need to do this, right? Sometimes we have things going on that students need extra support so they can use a little push in some way. But if we constantly do it and don't allow kids to experience the natural friction of life, so they, you don't get the, you know, again, you don't get the part in the play you want, or, you know, you, you forgot to turn something in. And so there's a consequence, you know, those kind of natural frictions that then teach kids, okay, well, I don't want that consequence anymore. Or, hey, that happened, but it wasn't the end of the world. I ended up doing this instead, right? The natural friction allows kids to practice that cognitive flexibility and that adaptability. And the earlier they can do it on lower stakes items, right? Like not a big deal, not a lifelong you know, thing. And the more they can bounce back more quickly while still processing the disappointment, the more able they are to navigate life because life is full right now of uncertainties of different shapes and sizes. And, you know, if we constantly have a smooth surface going forward, there's going to come a day where the parent or caregiver can't smooth, you know, smooth the ice. And what happens then? The friction feels a lot worse than it actually is. 
Okay, last question. You offer a path forward to kids that you call the entrepreneurial model of success. It's not about starting your own business, but it is a really practical way of approaching problems. So in about 30 seconds, can you explain the entrepreneurial model of success? So yeah, the entrepreneurial model of success is really this idea that um, we, you know, entrepreneurs are nimble, they're flexible, they're figuring out their own pathways. And we want every child to develop their own blueprint. So in the book, I really talk about these four pillars, right, around systems, connection, perspective, and acceptance as the ways that we help every child build their own entrepreneurial model of success. They figure out what their values are. They figure out how their daily habits and choices and routines are moving them towards those values or away from those values. And then they adopt their exercises and, you know, adopt their behaviors accordingly. And what this does is it gives kids a sense of autonomy, that they have choices, that they are competent to make good choices, and that we we care about them and their belonging within the community. And all three of those things are the root of the research around intrinsic motivation. So if we can intrinsically motivate kids to develop their own blueprint instead of, you know, comparing themselves in comparison culture, we really are fueling this entrepreneurial model of success. Okay, I want to thank you very, very much. My guest today has been academic advisor Anna Humayun. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. Erasing the Finish Line was recently published by Hachette Books. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on what success really means for kids, one interview at a time. Bye for now. 